Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to uh, Galatians chapter 3. While um, you're turning there, I'm looking for... There's Miss Haley Short. Haley, can you stand so we can thoroughly embarrass you for a second? Haley has something pretty big happening today. She is going to be inducted at North Davidson High School into the National Honor Society. And so we need to give her one great round of applause. Thank you, Haley. You can, uh, you can thank me for that later. Um, I'm very proud of that. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to see that the Lord has been so gracious to us. Uh, that is the Lord's blessing, uh, to give young people who are seeking um, excellence um, in all things and, and, and has been gracious to her. So we, we rejoice with her. Well, you're going to all want to or feel like you should be inducted in the National Honor Society after we read this text this morning. Uh, this is a rich text. Don't blame me for it. Blame Paul. Um, but it is thick. Paul is writing thick stuff in Galatians chapter 3 verse 15 through 29. So let's dive in together. I'm really reading again from Galatians chapter 3 verses 15 through 29. To give you a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. Is the law then... Contrary to the promises of God, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We come as a people banking on Your Word this morning. Lord, coming as a people trusting that Your Word will work as You see fit. Lord, trusting in the promise that You said, wherever Your Word goes out, it will not return void. 
And yet, Lord, we also come as frail creatures. And Lord, uh, we come as those, quite honestly, that uh, do not on a regular basis read arguments this in depth. And so, Father, we come and just ask for help this morning that we would understand what is it that the Apostle Paul is writing? What is it that you, Lord, have given the Apostle Paul? What is this word from you? And Lord, I ask that you would be gracious to me, a servant, Lord. Uh, help me to explain what it is uh, that you're saying about the law, what you're saying about the promise, what you're saying about Christ, what you're saying about us in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would be gracious to those who are listening. Lord, give them attentiveness. Uh, Lord, give them help by your Spirit. Lord, in all things, would Christ be on display? Would your Spirit Make much of Christ in our midst together this morning. We ask all these things to You, Father. We ask them through the name of Christ. We ask that You apply them by Your Word, through Your Spirit. Amen. Well, um, I, I don't have any statistics to back up this claim, but I don't really need any to believe this claim. And that is the claim that most people understand the primary concern of Christianity is to make bad people good. Or some people might be a little bit more optimistic and they might say the primary concern that Christianity is after is to make good people better. However you want to put it, Christianity is primarily, on this view, concerned with helping people become better. I submit to you this morning, that is not the primary concern of Christianity. The primary concern of Christianity is not to make bad people become better or bad people become good. Instead, the primary concern of Christianity and the central aim of Scripture is to explain how can anyone be right with God. Paul is concerned that the Galatians have bought into thinking that Christianity is about helping bad people become good or good people become better. And he's concerned that they have now looked at the law and misunderstood it and are now using it to, for themselves to become better. It has become their vehicle. And he's saying to them in this chapter, if you do that, you will misunderstand the law and you will certainly misunderstand Christ. So there's an overall, overall principle I want us to walk away with this morning and that is this. We cannot properly respond to Jesus unless we properly understand the purpose of the law. Let me say that one more time. We cannot properly respond to Jesus unless we properly understand the purpose of the law. So, verse 13 of chapter 3 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, Curses everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. That's Galatians 13, 3, 13 and 14. Nathan spent uh, uh, some time a few weeks ago looking at that, and he rightly emphasized these verses in saying that Jesus became a curse for us, and in so doing, united us with the blessing and the promise of Abraham. Now Paul anticipates his opponent's response to this. He knows what they're going to say. 
they're going to say this, at least that's what he's assuming. He's assuming they're going to say, sure, Paul, we get that Abraham was given a promise, and we get that his offspring were, were to be counted in that promise. We get that. We're with you fully. But Paul, don't forget, after the promise came the law. So it's no problem for us to emphasize the law because it came after the promise. So that's where verse 15 picks up. Now, I'm going to ask that you take a deep breath and stay with me for a little while. We're going to dive into these verses. I, I really believe we can do it together. Um, but I will also warn you, it's thick. It is Paul at his finest. Um, and he is offering some really complex but beautiful stuff. Listen to what he's arguing. He says this. To give a human example. So he's going to help us with an analogy. Brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So he's just starting with a basic premise, principle. One that we all get. And that is, if you have a contract, before the, uh, the deal is made, the purchase is made, the agreement is brought through, before all that happens, you sign the contract. And once a contract's been signed, you don't go changing the contract. That's just the way it is. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. That's all Paul's saying there. He's saying, we all get this. That's basic. It doesn't change. If that's true for humans, says Paul, then how much more true must that be of God? If God makes a promise, then surely that promise does not change. Now, Paul is telling us that. Because he wants us to understand that God made a promise with Abraham. That he was going to give salvation through Abraham to his offspring. And so however we understand the law that came after the promise, we have to understand it cannot change the promise because a contract was already made. So however it is that we understand the law is given to Moses, it has to be understood as part of the promise given to Abraham. If you're still with me, we're doing great. Alright, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ and, and so there's a question here. How is it that we understand the laws given to Moses as being part of the promise given to Abraham? If he told Abraham, I'm going to give your offspring something, then how is it the law has anything to do with that? Paul gets right to the answer right here. He says right here, when he's referring to offspring, he's referring to Jesus. That's the point of verse 16. When he's referring to offspring, he's referring to Jesus. So in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15, if you're wondering what those are, just go back and worship God later and you'll see them. We, we highlighted those points and, and we read them together this morning. The promise was a covenant with Abraham. The chief recipient of that promise to Abraham was Jesus Christ. That does not, Paul is not negating the fact that there is a whole nation that would get that promise called the Israelites, the Jews. But he is saying the primary recipient is Jesus Christ. So recall back in Genesis, God makes a promise to Abraham, a promise that he's going to give Abraham 
a son, Isaac. We remember all the fact that they had not had children and they were very old in age and it seemed very unlikely. You remember that story. He's going to give him a promised heir. The heir is Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob has sons, lots of them. And after that, they massively multiply. I mean, crazy multiply. They go down to Egypt. God saves them and takes them down to Egypt. And while there, finally at one point, Pharaoh looks around and goes, these people won't stop birthing. Right? Something like that. And I don't know the Egyptian uh, 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 translation of that, but something like that. God raises up Moses and he leads them out of Egypt. And then soon afterwards, God gives the Israelites through Moses a law so that somewhere around 430 years after Jacob, so remember, Abraham's a promise, then Isaac, then Jacob. So about 430 years after that, you get the law through Moses. Verse 17. That is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. It's the same point again. You don't do it with human covenants. Yes, the law came after the promise, but God's not doing it with His covenant. He's not changing it or breaking it. The law given to Moses is part of the promise given to Abraham. It's not like Abraham's promise is version 1 and the promise to Moses and the law to Moses is version 2. If that's the case, then there are multiple ways for salvation. And they're not. The law was never made for salvation. He's made that point over and over and over in Galatians. He's going to make it again in this chapter. Alright, keep going. Verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it's no longer given by promise. But God gave it to Abraham how? By promise. So the word inheritance is pretty much synonymous with salvation. He gives salvation to Abraham. He's arguing the law was never meant to bring salvation. It was always intended to come through promise. The promised seed of Abraham. And now he says, if the law brings salvation, then it does so outside the promise. But it doesn't. The law helps us secure the salvation of the promise. If you've stuck with me, you're doing really well. I've got a summary statement coming up here somewhere. It's got a 1, 2, and a 3, and a 4 on it. Um, I'm hoping we'll find that. Alright, keep going, keep going. I want you to see this. I think it would be helpful. Keep going. Keep going. Pass the ground rule. Alright, keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Bingo. Alright, here we go. feel like uh, Price is right here. Alright. Um, <laughs> Look what y'all have won. Alright, uh, here we go. The, what does the promise have to do with the law? The promise precedes the law. We've seen it. Jesus is the ultimate heir of the promise. The law does not nullify the promise. Nor does the law bring the promised inheritance. That's, that's exactly what Paul's argued for right now. Those are the points that he has argued for. So if all that's true, if it can't bring salvation, and I know you're asking it, at least act like you're asking it. It'd be helpful. 
Why the law? Well, why the law? Paul's glad we asked. 19. Why the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Okay, so Paul says <laughs> the law is added because of transgressions. It's added because of sin until when? It's added because of sin until the promised offspring comes. He says until the promised offspring. Now, who's the promised offspring? Dead on. Jesus Christ. Dead on. He's the promised offspring. Now, this whole part about because of, sin, of sins, we're going to deal a lot with it, so just hold on with that first. He also says here, uh, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And you say, well, what does that mean? I'm going to give you a stab at it. Here's, where I'm going to, here's my stab. My stab is that I think it's connected to the fact that Jesus fulfills the promise. The law was fulfilled through an intermediary who is who? Moses. But the promise is fulfilled through Christ. There is no intermediary needed because Jesus is God. That's my stab at it. By the way, I wouldn't but, uh, bet much on it. I wouldn't even bet my lunch on it. Um, I'm not real sure, to be quite honest with you. It's one of the hardest verses in the Bible to translate, so I'm just going to front that and give it to you. I'm not sure. But I did read in one commentary that there are over 420, 430 other um, interpretations of this. So if I'm wrong, i got 429 other people to stand with me wrong. Um, and that's just assuming that there's one guy who's right. So I, I think that's what it means. That seems to fit, but we're just going to move right along because there's other things we do know. So we know that the law came because of sin until Christ should come. Just keep this in mind. This is where we're going. The law came because of sin until Christ should come. So the law has a temporary job. Just think about that. The law has a temporary job. Why do I know that? Because he puts an until. Right? Until. Okay. Before Paul jumps right into that, he's afraid about one other misconception. He's afraid that people might understand him to be saying that the law and promise are at odds. So he's going to deal with that and then he's going to go right through the argument. Is the law, verse 21, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. So the answer there is no. So the question is, is the law contrary to the promise of God. If you're saying all this stuff about the law and you say it's got to do with sin, is it contrary to the promise? And his answer is certainly not. For if a law had been giving that, given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. As I already mentioned, when the law came, righteousness did not come with it. Instead, he said what came with it? Sin. So if it could bring salvation, it would have. If it could bring righteousness, it would have. But it didn't. He says something similar in Romans chapter 5, verse 13. He says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So did people sin prior to the t before the, uh, the law was given? 
Yes. Yeah. You ask Abel if there was murder before the law was given. He's going to affirm yes. <laughs> yep, felt that way. <laughs> was that murder? Yes. So the, Paul's point is certainly there was sin before the law. What the law does is it calls it what it is and it makes formal our rebellion against God. It makes former, formal our rebellion against God. Alright, now we're getting to the meat of the argument. This, this gets good. This is a sports cap. It's hard to do that silently. Um, verse 22, But the Scripture, and that's when he says Scripture here, he's talking law. The law imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So verse 22, The law imprisoned everything under sin so that, there's a reason there, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So he's still answering a question, why the law? Well, he answers, he says, the law was made to prepare for the coming of Christ. Let me say it one more time. The law was made to prepare for the coming of Christ. And how does it do it? Listen to this. By imprisoning everything under sin. The law makes ready the appearing of Christ by imprisoning everything behind the bars of sin. I promise we're going to come up for air in a second. Verse 23. But now before faith came, so before faith came in Jesus, he's talking about a New Testament faith that's given into this promised seed. So this is faith in Jesus. We were, he's talking to believers here, we were held captive under the law. Now he's talking to both Gentile and Jewish believers. Because so Galatians were Gentiles, they weren't Jews. They didn't have a past in the ceremonies and all. He says, now before the faith came, we were held under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. <laughs> he says, we're all locked up. Why? Because the law. God gave the law to lock us up. Verse 24. So then, the law. That so then lets you know he's getting ready to allow us to come up for air. That is, I'm summing it all up, he says. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. The law was the guardian until Christ got here. It was our tutor. It was our keeper. It was holding us out until our, our real heritage could come around. All until Jesus gets here. Why the law? Why not just jump straight from Abraham and give us Jesus? Right? According to Paul, and the law comes for three reasons. One, because there is sin. Two, in order to imprison us behind the bars of sin. And three, to be our guardian. All in preparation for Jesus. That's why there is a law. It was intended to put us in captivity. 
to show us our need for Jesus. This is beautiful. God makes a promise with Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you an offspring. And to that offspring, I'm going to bring salvation. How am I going to bring salvation to your offspring? I'm going to bring salvation to your offspring because I'm going to bring salvation through your offspring. Primarily through Jesus. My son will be your son and my son will make your son my sons. That's, the, that's what he's after. So now, if we were writing the script, we would go from Abraham straight to the nativity, right? I mean, I would. It seems like it'd be a whole lot shorter. Not God. Not at all. The promise is given in which book of the Bible? Genesis. That is which one? First, second, third? First. <laughs> There are 39 books in the Old Testament. The promise of the entire Scriptures comes in chapter 12 of book 1. There are 38 other, pro or other chapters, guess, or books. Guess what they're all about? The law. <laughs> so Paul is making the argument. Everything's about what you get in the first book. In the first third of the first book. And the whole rest of the Old Testament is making ready for the very promise given right there. That's how he sums it up. Abraham's only heir was Isaac. Isaac became the father of a nation we call it Israel. God gives Israel a law. And part of that law is a list of rules describing what it takes to measure up to God's holiness. And how does that go for the people of God as they measure themselves up against that? Horrible. What a wonderful way to sum up all of Old Testament history. is exactly as Paul does. He says, I'll sum it up for you. This was a people chained, imprisoned by the law. What laid the foundation for that prison? What was the ceiling of that prison? The prison was their sin, but the bars that held them in was the law. So the story of the nation of Israel across the Old Testament was a story of a people staring at the perfect law of God and constantly falling short. So why, why the ceremonies and the rituals? Why the sacrifices and the festivals? Long story short, it was a trailer. It was a preview to the full feature of the cross and the coming kingdom of Jesus. So imagine, over and over you watch bloody sacrifices. Again and again, you witness the slaughter of the purest animals. You watch as the priest takes one ram and slaughters it. And then he takes another ram and he, and he, and he takes his hands and he puts it on the head of the ram and he, and he tells about all the sins of the people and then they send it out of the camp. What are you watching? You are watching a trailer of the cross to come. You're watching a trailer of the gospel. It's all about give, getting ready for Jesus. It is a tutor for the people. I cannot say it better than John Calvin when he says, the law, in short, was nothing else than an immense variety of exercises in which the worshipers were led by the hand of Christ. All through the law, 
He's leading them. All through the Old Testament, He's leading them right to Himself. The law was intended to imprison us in our sin and show us our inability to escape. But it does not do this forever. There's an appointed time. And thank God for verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Paul explains that with the appearing of Jesus, everything changes. I want you to imagine that there's a much anticipated movie. It came out, let's say, on November the 1st. And you know some folks are real excited to see it. And you find out that they've paid tickets to sit and watch the trailer. Now you're going to be confused about something if you hear that. You're going to wonder to yourself, if they're sitting and watching the trailer, and it's November the 24th, and the movie they want to see came out on November 1st, why aren't they watching the movie? (laughs) Why would you watch the trailer? It's exactly what Paul is saying to the Galatians. You're worshiping the law? What are you doing? Christ is here! There's an until. There is a release date. There's a full feature showing and you all are checking out the trailer. Makes no sense to me, says Paul. And now you know why he calls them foolish. Let me tell you, if you had a friend that did that and you don't call them foolish, you're not a friend. You might want to pick nicer words, but you need to give them something the lines of that. Makes no sense. There's a real movie to watch and that's exactly what Paul is saying. So as those who are believers, we would be greatly wasting our time if we live in prison by the law. We'd be wasting our time if we stopped at the law and didn't make it all the way to Jesus, who is the point. But since the law and the gospel were always made to go together, we would also be mistaken. Please listen to this. Since the law and the gospel always made it go together, we would be very much mistaken to make no use of the law at all. So how do we do that? How do we make use of the law without stopping at the law? Let me say that one more time. How do we, who have Christ, make use of the law without stopping at the law? If you're here and you're not an active follower of Jesus Christ, then I know beyond a shadow of doubt that the law is crushing you with its burdensome declarations of what you should be doing and how you should be living. It's crushing you with its declarations that you are disobeying God. And this is not the law's fault. It is not to blame for this. It is our rebellion that's to blame for this. I invite you to receive freedom today from that burden by enjoying the law for what it was intended to do. To lead you by the hand to the only one that can relieve you from those burdens. And His name is Jesus Christ. And for those of us that are believers, I'm very, very eager that we not hear this message and think it merely relates to how we first came to Jesus. Please hear me. Please hear me. This is a huge mistake. 
how are we using the law today? I have a feeling that many of us are misusing it. Either we are trying to ignore it by thinking it doesn't apply to us since we are already believers, or feeling its burdens and demands, we are trying to fulfill the demands ourselves. Listen, the law is a gift. It's a gift to you. And it's meant to drive you to a Savior. This doesn't just happen when you first come to Jesus. This should happen on a daily basis. Daily, we should find ourselves admitting our need for grace and mercy. And daily, we should find Jesus as the all-sufficient, all-satisfying treasure that He has promised. And that's not a new message. I found in uh, Luther, Martin Luther writing in the 1500s says this, so helpful. When the law drives... Now he's writing to his church. He's writing to believers. He's not given a gospel call to unbelievers. This is to believers. When the law drives you to the point of despair, let it drive you a little farther. Let it drive you straight into the arms of Jesus. It has been said that hunger is the best cook. <laughs> That's so good. The law makes afflicted consciences hungry for Christ. Christ tastes good to them. Hungry hearts appreciate Christ. Thirsty souls are what Christ wants. He invites them, Come unto me, all that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ's benefits are so precious that He will dispense them only to those who need them and really desire them. It is vitally important that we as a church get this point right. We are going to be tempted, on the one hand, to make light of the law. We're going to be afraid it will imprison people even ourselves, we were afraid that it would make them feel guilty, make them feel bad about themselves. Wouldn't it just be easier to not talk about it? That is the plight of many moderate churches, and it's dangerous. On the other hand, it will be tempting to love the law as an end in itself. In this case, we'll whittle it down to where it feels manageable, and then we begin to feel good about our ability to keep it. So we whittle it down to things like this. How do we dress? What music do we listen to? We whittle it down to our clean reputation. How we educate our children. What movies we watch or don't watch. And then we all work with all our might to play within these rules, feeling as if we have it together. This is the plight of many fundamentalist churches. But don't you realize that both of these extremes are doing the exact same thing. They both fail to take the law seriously. And as a result, it prevents the law from accomplishing the very thing it was intended to do. Each fails to get us to an all-sufficient Savior. So how do we live life between these two extremes? Paul answers this beautifully. And I have to tell you, I did not see this before this week. I didn't see the connection. I'll tell you how dumb I am as a preacher. 
I was looking at the text going, I have no idea how to help people here. I have no idea. I'm walking around. I have no idea. I don't know what to do. How can I help them? Hey, dummy, might, might want to keep reading. That'd be a good idea. I've already taken care of that. And he does. It's called identity. It's about taking our identity in Christ seriously. When we realize how vastly secure we are in Jesus, we will gain the courage to honestly look at ourselves as who we are compared to the law. Because we will not fear the consequences. Swallow this truth. Just swallow this. This is an immense truth. There is nothing the law that can, can reveal about us that has not already been paid on the cross of Christ. There's nothing the law can reveal about me that has not already been paid on the cross of Christ. The only thing I have to lose is my pride. Which, by the way, was paid for on the cross of Christ. Listen to Paul. He is going to go off. Mm, this is good. Verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have, been, have put on Christ. Paul reminds the Galatians that through faith they are sons of God. And in verse 29, he's going to connect that with Abraham's offspring. That means that when God made the promise to Abraham centuries ago concerning his offspring, the Galatians were included in it. Wait a second. In Genesis chapter 12, when God came to that nobody Abram and he made a promise, we were included in it. Unreal. Our identity is as secure as the promise God made to Abraham. There are a lot of other nations around then. Have you ever heard of them? Not unless you've studied history, because you won't hear about them in the modern news, but God will take care of His own. He describes the Galatian believers as those who have been baptized. By the way, that means fully immersed. I've just got to get that in there. It is the truth, but I've got to get that in there. It's the whole point here. There's nothing of them left. They're fully immersed. They're all in. And then he gives a better metaphor. He says you take all of you in and he gets fully immersed. Now you've got a bunch of clothes you can't wear. You come up stark naked in your birthday suit. What do you put on? That's exactly what he's accepting. Jesus. You go down with all of your nastiness and you come up and you put on Jesus. All of your guilt goes down and all of Jesus' righteousness come on. To Paul, who we are in Christ is so primary to our identity that all other facts about us pale in comparison. Now hold that for a second. There are a lot of facts about you. I can talk about or more are you breathing? You hope that's a yes, but that's a fact about you, right? Are you here? Yes. What is your gender? What is your race? What is your profession? I mean, we could go on, right? 
He says none of those mean anything. There are diddly squat compared to who you are in Jesus. How do I know that? Because of verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. He says all of those things look minor compared to the primary fact about who you are. You are Christ. Please don't misunderstand this text. It has been misunderstood and it loses its gospel value real quick. He is not saying there's no such thing as a gender distinction. He's not even saying, that's not the point here, there's no such thing as any racial distinctions whatsoever. What's his point? His point is even given those distinctions, they mean nothing compared to the fact that you are Christ. What a remarkable statement. What an unbelievable statement. The fact that you are a male or a female is nothing compared to whether you belong to Jesus or not. Oh, would it not be a beautiful thing if somebody's the, ver, the very first thing they know about you is He belongs to Christ. Even before they know what race you are, they might even be confused on what gender you are, but they aren't confused about the fact that you belong to Jesus. According to Galatians, the most important and primary statement that might be said about us is that we belong to Christ. That you belong to Christ is more central to who you are than your age, your marital status, your income, whether you're pleased or displeased with how you look, whether you're disciplined or undisciplined, whether you're well-read or unread, more important than what anybody thinks of you is that you are Christ. And i got to tell you, we got to be real careful with this. Unfortunately, this identity idea has been misunderstood as of late. I hear claims like this, and it makes me cringe. You matter. Here's the claim. You matter. You need a sports drink for this one. So much to God. Sorry, you matter so much that God chose to give His Son for you. Therefore, you should feel good about yourself. You matter so much to God, according to this claim. You matter so much that God chose to give His Son for you. Therefore, you should feel good about yourself. Now, hold on. <laughs> this is not an issue of semantics. This is dangerous. This is not what Paul is saying. <laughs> First, because this discounts the gospel. The gospel is the incredible notion that who we were, that, oh, sorry, that although we are incredibly unworthy of mercy, we have received incredible mercy. It is the incredible notion that in spite of our unworthiness, He still was kind. Secondly, this is dangerous because it jeopardizes the very thing I think it's trying to secure. As I don't hear people say this and think they have a bad intention. I think their intention is to make somebody feel better about themselves, to give them a better self-image. But I'm telling you, it will jeopardize the very thing it's trying to secure. That is, if I believe that my worth is what brings God's favor to me, 
then I am wide open to believe in the future that if I fail to keep up my worthiness, then God's favor will depart from me. But the gospel is not less than that. The gospel is much more than that. The gospel tells me there is nothing I can do to lose God's favor because I did nothing to earn God's favor. Instead, He loved me fully in spite of me. To understand it otherwise will incite pride and ultimate despair. But when I swallow, I had nothing to do with the promise. The law has shown me who I am. And Christ is all I have. And now my worthiness is so incredible. That's the Gospel. Paul helps us land on a much surer footing. The primary, central, most significant question is do you belong to Christ? And if you belong to Christ, then all that was promised to Abraham is yours. Alright, we got to sum it up. We're closing. This is a dense argument. I don't want us to lose... The forest for the trees. God made a promise to Abraham. A promise he never for a second changed or ever drew back. The main thrust of God's promise to Abraham was that God was sending His Son Jesus to be born as Abraham's descendant. And in order to make ready for Jesus, God gave the law. The law prepared the way by making official our rebellion and need for Jesus. It enslaved us all so much that we were able to say, somebody's got to set us free. And all those who place their faith in Jesus unite themselves with the promise of Abraham. And they gain the promised salvation that was promised to him. Further, those who unite themselves with Jesus make proper use of the law as they continually use the law day in and day out to lead them to Christ, the whole purpose of the law. So how do you now live? How do I now live? By understanding our primary identity. By understanding that we are adopted as sons and daughters of Christ. This fact serves to give us immense security to exalt Christ in our lives like we never have before. When you hide around the law and you're afraid to look at it, then Christ doesn't get exalted much because you don't need Him much. But when you take serious the law, and the only way you can take serious the law and, and not be enslaved to it is take serious your identity. The two of those together will bring you the gospel. And so as a church, there should be a consistent balancing act of taking serious the law in taking serious our identity. Never understanding our identity in Christ without understanding the law, but never finding ourselves enjoying the law without remembering our identity in Jesus. They must go together. The law and the promise. The law and the gospel. Let's pray.